This is Johnny LaGuardia from WJAD. I bring you the latest on the Pearl kidnapping. Now, I don't know who kidnapped who, but runaways, can you hear me? Tune into me, because I'm tuned into you. Hello and welcome to The Letterbox Show, a podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterbox, the social network for people who love watching movies. Each episode, your hosts Gemma, that's me, and Slim are joined by a Letterboxd friend for a chat about their four favourite films. That is, the four films you choose as your favourites on your Letterboxd profile. As you listen, we'll have links in the episode notes, so there is no excuse not to add these films to your watch lists, especially today. Our guest is writer, non-fiction filmmaker, and film historian, Jenny Olson. Hi Gemma. Hey Slim. Nice to be here. Welcome. (laughs) Your letterboxed handle is Jenny with an I, Olson SF, and your own films, it's like I'm telling you the story of your life, include <laughs> The Joy of Life and The Royal Road, and her books include The Queer Movie Poster Book and the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Queer Cinema. Jenny's four letterboxed fave are a bounty of queer cinema spanning the years 1976 all the way to 2004, and they include Deb's Times Square, News From Home, and Tongues Untied. So, Jenny, are you mentally ready to discuss these four films? And do you remember the last time you sat down to talk about this combination of films recently? Uh, It's been a while since I've, or I don't remember specifically talking about this exact combination of films, but I I certainly talk about them individually and in... in, uh, all kinds of ways and uh, but but yeah I'm especially excited to talk to you guys I I just want to start off by saying thanks I mean every every week is a bounty of um, new movies rewatches and and other curios from our guests but this week in particular I think I had the best time um, <laughs> so I just want to start off by saying thank you for your selection and um, I've been meaning to watch Debs for a while and I've been teasing you over email for the last couple of weeks, Jenny, about some uh, some sexy letterbox statistics around this film, which I'm going to drop in a few minutes. I'm just going to tease. Edge of my seat. Yeah, I'm going to tease it out. <laughs> but, but that is the reason I've been quite keen to watch Debs and I'm glad you finally gave me the excuse. So this is... Uh, this is the most recent of your four faves from 2004, written and directed by Angela Robinson. It has a 3.6 average on Letterboxd. You are one of 414 fans, 414 people who have this in their top four. We've got Amy Bradshaw, the star of a team of teenage crime fighters with impossibly short tartan skirts, known as the Debs. Amy falls for Lucy Diamond, the alluring villainess she must bring to justice. What put this, apart from that hot synopsis, in your top four? <laughs> I. It's funny. I. Uh, I mean, it's, it's Debs is such a unique film, and um, I just have to make the observation that I was thinking about it last night and thinking about the fact that one of my other top films listed is Times Square, which is also a you know teen kind of teen lesbian, although kind of more proto-lesbian, uh, a film. And um, I think, I mean, there are so many things I love about Debs. Um, 
And one notable thing is that uh, it was the first lesbian film with a, to, to have a PG-13 rating, um, which is kind of amazing to think about. And, um, okay, I do a lot of digressions, so I'm just going to digress to observe. Can I, can I digress and say it took until the 21st century to get the first PG-rated lesbian content yeah. film? It's yes. kind of an amazing yeah. thing. So, so uh, the incredibly true adventures of two girls in love, the film by Maria Magenti that came out in um, 1995, uh, was rev- actually received an R rating, and um, it is also a teen lesbian love story, an incredibly innocent teen lesbian love story, which Roger Ebert actually at the time in his review of the film pointed out the absolute um, double standard uh, around the fact that it had received an R rating and how wrong that was. And that the only reason it got an R rating was that it was a lesbian film Mm. and any, you know, corresponding kind of straight film would have gotten a PG rating. Um, And it's such a romantic and sweet and, and hilarious film. And it's the entire thing is, it's simultaneously an actual, you know, kind of spy movie while also being a spoof of all of the conventions of the genre of these kinds of, you know, teen spy movies. Um, and Angela Robinson is just brilliant in like, you know, kind of doing those spoofs. I, I was pretty stunned when I watched this this week. It felt like if it were made today, it would almost be almost like an animated action film with this the subtext because it's so campy and mm. it's almost odd to see a movie so campy from this era as a live action film let mm. alone the storyline and how you know like you said groundbreaking it is so it's 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 a lot of fun going back to, and watching this and it's almost kind of like mind-blowing to me anyway i mean i think one of the reasons that it, it is such a unique film is that angela um comes from both an independent film. I mean, it's really actually quite a small independent film kind of mimicking, you know, like I'm saying, like the, the conventions of a, a, you know, more of what you think of as a Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, kind of breaking through in that way. The closest thing that I could think of to an action movie that I was thinking of was like, you know, Robert Rodriguez made those spy kids movies Ah, in his kind of style. Yeah. It felt like, you know, lesbian-infused spy kids, and it was yeah. hilarious, and it, it yeah. worked on, like, every level. Uh, Angela has, like, you know, all of the skills to be able to make, and, and has, of course, gone on to make uh, lots of big movies and, and lots of TV as well. She does a lot of TV directing. and So she did Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, right? Right, yes, which I also love. is also yeah. such a great film. And also um, another one of my favorite, you know, kind of teen movies, um, the Herbie movie, uh, Herbie. Uh, Herbie Fully Loaded. Herbie, Herbie. Fully Loaded. <laughs> yeah. That's it. yeah. So, um, I mean, it just let's just talk a little bit more about the story mm-hmm. and, the, and, and the plot in this, because you've got, you've got a, a bunch of uh, impossibly bright young women who are, living together in a, in a dorm as part of this private school that trains spies based on uh, a secret part of the results of their SAT tests or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so so then the, the assignment comes through, which is that uh, of the greatest, uh, most villainous 
crime family in the world, there is one remaining family member, and that happens to be this hot lesbian teenage daughter of the family called Lucy Diamond. Genius name. And uh, for the first time in many years, she's coming back into the States. So she's local, and they can get her. And (laughs) her first outing, she's meeting with a hot Russian hit woman, and they all... (laughs) The, the entire FBI and Deb's Academy are thinking that, you know, there's there's, a, there's some kind of nefarious reason for this, but it's a blind date. <laughs> so you're an assassin? Duh. How does that work? It's mostly freelance. So you just, you basically, what, you kill like whoever? Sometimes maim. Maiming's more. Then the other thing I love about it is while it's, while it is this kind of, brilliant spy film that also spoofs spy spy conventions and spy tech. There's also this whole other kind of very LA side of it. Like the point where they drive through that tunnel and then bust through a secret force field. And then suddenly they're in like the diviest backwater of LA with this incredible bar, this incredible music playing, these extremely cool non-spy people I want to know the address of that tunnel so I can go there. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the tunnel. Um, and uh, this is, here's a great crazy anecdote. When, uh, like maybe, I don't know, seven years ago, I was in LA for Outfest. And uh, one of the venues that Outfest uses is the Red Cat Theater downtown Los Angeles. And I was at the screening with and with Angela and we went out for dinner afterwards nearby to Red Cat. And as we're walking to the restaurant, I turned and looked behind me for some reason and was like, oh, my God, that. And so this is even better. I turn and I look and I go, oh, it's the it's the Hill Street Tunnel. I have a really great shot of that in the Royal Road my film. And Angela <laughs> looks at me and is like, that's the tunnel in Debs. <laughs> oh my God. This is amazing. I'm such a fan of film tourism. I've talked a bit about the places yeah. I have gone, but this feels like there's a whole other tranche of lesbian film <laughs> tourism that could sort of end, end with a party out the other side of the Hill it's Street true. Tunnel. Yeah. What I, what I also had no idea, um, we should mention too, for people that have not seen Debs, but the uh, villainous characters played by Jordana Brewster from the Fast and the Furious franchise. I was like, oh, wait a minute, she's in this? I had no idea. That's a pretty strong cast, to be honest. Um, it's a terrific cast. Yeah, I was going to say, how many Fast and Furious fans are sleeping on this film? Seriously? Think, because wake up. it is stacked with Fast and Furious <laughs> ladies. And it's also got Holland Taylor as the kind of head head of the oh Debs Academy, who's like also just a brilliant performance, brilliant. This is brilliantly written. It almost feels like this had franchise written all over it. We talked about Fast and Furious, but like I could see several more Debs movies being made in in various mediums, maybe not even just film. I would love to see a Debs uh, series, you know, limited series. Are you ready to announce that you're working on that series, Jenny? (laughs) Live on this show, exclusive breaking news. If Angela Angela says the word, I'm I'm there. Honestly, Netflix, Amazon, why are you sleeping on this? Okay, so here's the thing. While we're talking about um, the history of things, Letterboxd is turning 10. Uh, As as this... um, 
episode lands, we will be heading into our 10th birthday month and also LGBT plus history month. Uh, So here's some letterboxed history for you related to Debs. Are you ready for me to drop it? I'm so ready. (laughs) Yes, please. So over the course of our 10-year history, we've done some data diving into the films. We call them the risers. The 50 films that have had the greatest ratings increase over their time on Letterboxd. So they had to have been released you know, before or, or at the very beginning of Letterbox history, they had to have had a minimum number of ratings. Uh, and then that rating needed to have climbed over time. And I'm really pleased to exclusively reveal to you that Debs is one of those 50 films. It has risen. It's currently, like I say, got a 3.6 average. Actually, if we dig in, it's currently quietly sitting at 3.7 at this current point in the year. But we'll see how that shakes down by the year. But um, it's risen. It's like it's a meteoric rise from 2.6 to 3.6 in Letterbox Lifetime. Jeez, 2. Like that's 6. a whole ratings point. And uh, on top of that, if you look at other film aggregation sites, it's nowhere near. It's like mm-hmm. 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, 5.3 mm-hmm. out of 10 on IMDb. So what does that say to you about... Letterboxd in particular and the community in particular on Letterboxd, watching films like Deb's, Jennifer's Body, like it's fascinating. There's also, we've got the films of Ernest R. Dickerson on that on that list. Bones is number one, by the way. Mm. It's had the biggest wow. ratings increase mm. over that time. Wow, that's fascinating. And I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense. And and it's interesting, I mean, that you referenced the other ratings. And, and I mean, I do think Deb's is a very unique film that a lot of people... Um, took it at face value as just a a normal movie, like just a spy movie, and didn't actually see the humor in it, like didn't see the nuance to it. And that it, 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 it that I know a lot of people that it doesn't really work for, it falls flat for, or they don't get it. And, um, and I think that's the case with many, you know, cult films that like certain people are really fanatical about them because mm-hmm. we, we get it in a certain way. And um, so I'm I'm not surprised in, in that sense, and uh, and uh, and of course I think I think you know I'm like oh yeah well it's because it has like champions you know and I can imagine that it would have you know shown up at a lower level and then people are championing it and it is one of the I love Letterboxd so much as a site the functionality that you have, the level of community, and and that this is actually one of the unique phenomena of Letterboxd that, yeah, people are like, oh, Jenny liked that movie. Well, maybe I'll give it a shot. Mm. And and that people are discovering things and and, you know, giving them a different um different chance and and reevaluating them. So so that really makes a lot of sense. And I, I can see Debs as kind of a poster child in, in that in that respect. I also wonder, I mean, not wonder, I know that a lot of it has to do with, and we know this about Jennifer's body, a lot of it has to do with marketing and marketing channels for, for films like these when they first came out versus now when we're like, what, 15 years into social media and um, the ability to create memes and gifts and, and share moments from our from our cult faves. And so, you know, there there were very few and quite blunt marketing tools back then. Mm -hmm. Posters, Mm -hmm. um, you know, posters Mm -hmm. 
ad space and magazines and uh, the interview circuit if you are lucky. And now there's there are just so many more platforms and avenues to talk about a film to very specific audiences. So I think it's sort of, you know, can only bode well for newer films coming out, but it's also so, so exciting to see older films like this be kind of rightfully reclaimed yeah. by the people who should have been marketed to in the first place. Amazon, again, wake up. Yeah. It's time. <laughs> Deb's series win. Deb's series win. And maybe if we're not executive producers on this series, Amazon, I'm going to raise holy hell. In fact, I'm just going to, let's just start a whole letterboxed streaming platform for the for the romantic spice spoof lesbian content we all deserve. On that note, I just want to finish off the Deb section with a, with a couple of um, hot letterbox takes that I, I know you'll enjoy, Jenny. Caleb writes that Deb's is the perfect lesbian spy movie that puts lesbianing first and spying second. And um, and then uh, and Brat, the wonderful Brat, writes the cheesy rom com version of Killing Eve we deserve. <laughs> Emily, perhaps speaking to those of us who you know who are questioning the films that cinephiles have declared the greatest in the land, writes honestly, who needs Citizen Kane when you can watch Debs? <laughs> Here, here. Get that on. A, let's get that on a shirt, please, on the letterbox uh, storefront. That's right. I love speaking it. of speaking of putting things on shirts, I am now petitioning the bosses to add uh, a Sleaze Sisters T-shirt to letterbox merch range. <laughs> wow, what a great uh, transition! She is <laughs> the queen head. of transitions. Our next movie is Times Square, nineteen eighty. In the heart of Times Square, a poor girl becomes famous, a rich girl becomes courageous, and both become friends as they form a punk band, which soon has New York by its ears. And this is a uh, very difficult to track down film, Times Square, thanks to you know industry connections. We were able to watch this ahead of time. And in my digging, in my exhaustive research, I looked for like a Blu-ray or a 4K transfer, see if it was coming out. And I saw a tweet from the Kino Lorber, uh, you know, the boutique release. They had plans for 4K. And in the replies, this is a tweet two years ago, I saw none other than Jenny Olsen saying that you owned a 35 millimeter print of this film. Is that accurate? Was that tweet true? That is true. <laughs> um, uh, Times Square actually for many, 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 many years, I always said Times Square was my favorite movie. Um, until then, I decided to say that Debs was my favorite movie. But, um, but Times Square is, uh, is, uh, is still one of my favorite movies. And yes, I, I do own a 35 millimeter print of it, which I um, actually, that's interesting to think of. I bought, um, God, a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago. Um, from a collector in Australia, um, and it was um, the director Alan Moyle had didn't it had fallen out of distribution and no one had prints here and he was had been a asked to have it included in a, a retrospective at the Whitney Museum and was trying to find a print and um, I ended up letting him use my print for that Jeez. screening. And <sighs> we got to know each other a bit and. Um, 
Anyway, I got very, I've been very involved with that film in multiple ways over the years, and then I ended up screening it. I was the co-director of the San Francisco LGBT Film Festival in the early 90s and programmed it there and brought Robin Johnson in. Oh my God, you've met Um, Robin Johnson. Yes. (laughs) But I, and I did a lot of research on the film in the early nineties and wrote a bunch about it. I, I went and researched the original script that was at the USC script library and kind of unearthed um, things that were in it that were uh, more explicitly lesbian mm-hmm. um, with regard to, so the, the the plot, you know, so it's two teenage girls who escape from a mental hospital together, um, which is more fun than it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, it's a great, the um, escape scene is so great. It involves a boombox and, and yeah, it's just, it's so good. They escape from the New York mental hospital together and, um, uh, kind of inspire each other and and all of it kind of overseen by the the Times Square disc jockey played by Tim Curry. Who's, whose name is Johnny LaGuardia, one of the best one of the best <laughs> New York DJ names of all time. If I was casting anyone as a New York City DJ, it would be Tim Curry. Oh because <laughs> the he's first amazing. name you think of. He's, he's fantastic as kind of narrating or kind yeah. of, you know, he's this kind of over seeing the whole story. And so Robin Johnson is the is the kind of tough girl who clearly is quite a troubled person and is actually living on the streets and uh, squ- squatting on the piers. This is this is and it, one of the most amazing things about it is it's shot in 1979. It's released in 1980 in New York City in the heart of Times Square and on the piers and and uh, you know so it's and it's on location so you. Just it has these almost documentary quality to qualities mm-hmm. to it, um, and then um, Trini Alvarado plays the other girl, who's who's the daughter of the guy who's I think he's running for mayor, and he's yeah. like wealthy, and she lives on the Upper West Side, and but he's kind of a schmuck, and he wants to he wants to clean up Times Square and bring gentrification in, and you know we see where all this is yeah. going, right? It has an incredible grittiness to it, and and also you know in terms of the plot, like the ethos behind the plot, like as you pointed out, you know that is this kind of you know oh gentrification. It's all about like yeah they want to clean up Times Square, and you know and the the girls are like you know kind of fuck that and. Uh, in cahoots with Tim Curry. And um, uh, I mean, there's so, there's so many things about it. I mean, you know, you, you sense from the beginning that they have kind of feelings for each other or kind of crushes on each other that, you know, could be seen as just whatever. They're just teenage girls and there's, it's perfectly innocent. But there are moments where it feels more than that. And there are kind of, um, in terms of the psychology of the characters, uh, you know, where where you can tell that it's stronger than that. And uh, the things that were removed from the script um, that indicated that it was more, you know, that they really were mm-hmm. uh, in love with each other. I'm just so fascinated by movies that go out of print for years. And Kino had tweeted that like we were going to do a 4K release of this movie. And after viewing it, I was like, oh my God, the 4K of this movie would be legit as hell. And the soundtrack is legit. Do you know why it's kind of just been lost to the sands of time for so long? Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of things. Well, first, just to say about the soundtrack, the soundtrack is amazing. Mm -hmm. 
And okay, this is I'm going to digress, and then I will. Oh, answer please! The question, Are we digressing but, about the soundtrack? Please but, digress yes. about it. It is insane. I'm just going to list the Cars, the Cure, Susie Quattro, Gary Newman, the Pretenders, Roxy Music, Talking Heads, Patti Smith Group, the Ruts, XTC, and um, we'll come back to this. Robin Gibb. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So yeah, it's like super. Um, you know. And it, it was 1980. Like these were these. This was the music of the time, and the, and like very you know edgy music of the time. And um, so it was produced by um, RSO, Robert Stigwood Organization. And that there was, and there's like, and I've written about this. There's like all this legendary fallout where um, the way that Alan tells it is that he was actually um, sacked from the film, he didn't want to edit it, and that the producers insisted that it be edited to trim out certain, some of the narrative um, sequences to be able to fit in more music because they wanted it to be a double album. And, oh. I, you know, with these kind of stories, like, I don't know if that's the whole truth or... Although, that's we'll come back to Robin Gibb right now in that case, because that sort of seems to make a lot of sense in terms of where Robert Stigwood probably made most of his money, which was not from movies, but from stage musicals and from managing the Bee Gees and Cream. So yeah. you can see that his his motivation yeah. as, a, as a music manager is, I need a movie so I can put a lot of music in it, so I can sell that soundtrack and so I can, you know, make my artist well, and- speak. And and the funny thing about Robin Gibb, which is like is like one of these things does not belong in this list of artists, right? And the Robin Gibb song is actually and it is actually a really lovely song, but it's over the closing credits and it doesn't it does not fit with yeah. the edginess of the rest of it, you know, which includes like Patty Smith, you know, pissing in a river. <laughs> Um, and like, which is so great. And like, not to mention the song that Nikki sings, Damn Dog, which is, you know, just the best song ever. Yes. And that's the other thing. It has all this original music that, that they wrote, um, and that they performed, um, and that, that whole plot line, um, which is so great. The best thing about that sequence, so it's like that aspect of the plot is like, it's like, here we are in actual New York City, Times Square, you know, dirty place, 1980. The characters are literally teenage girls. Like Robin Johnson's character is maybe 15, 16 tops. Trini Alvarado in real life was 14 at the time. What? What? In the plot. They're like, they're squatting on the pier. They're like, oh, I guess we need to get jobs. <laughs> Trini Alvarado's character goes to a strip club on Times Square, goes in, says to the guy who's like clearly like like a cokehead, the manager of the strip club, who's like going like <laughs> through, through the whole scene where she's interviewing for the job as a topless waitress in a strip club as a 14-year-old girl. And she goes, she goes, well, I... Yeah, I want this job, but I don't want to um, take off my top. And he's like, he's like, oh, 
okay, sure. <laughs> and, and you're, you're just like, wow, that's, I look, you know, why don't we have teen movies anymore where like 14 year olds are working in strip clubs in Times Square. And then anyway, and then Robin Johnson proceeds to, you know, perform at the strip club and Trini Alvarado does a strip tease with her clothes on to the other song and like but but then the amazing thing is that it all works Mm -hmm. and it's kind of similar to Debs in a certain way that it also like one of the greatest things about the tone of the whole movie is that it has this earnestness to it like it's actually like quite cheesy in in a way I mean it's a very cheesy movie but it but it's like in a good way like it's very sincere and heartfelt and um, and it's such a cult film. I mean, people just, you know, are so cult connected to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to tell you the thing about <clears throat> why it hasn't been released. Um, so uh, there was actually a new 4K scan done of it, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago. And Kino, I've been in touch with Kino and like, you know, kind of advocating mm-hmm. constantly. And um, they were like, yeah, it's coming. We're going to do it. And then something happened with the scan. And so, yeah, like a year or so ago, it was programmed on uh, TCM. Turner Classic Movies played it. And they played it. And there was a problem with it. There was like a, it was almost like, I don't know if you've ever, back in the day when we would play VHS PAL tapes, and you'd be like, there's something wrong here. <laughs> like there was this like <laughs> lagging issue that was a it was an interlacing issue with the mm-hmm. file, yeah, yeah. and and it was like almost unwatchable. And I I couldn't believe that TCM was even airing it. Like that either someone hadn't watched it before they aired it. So as far as I know, Kino is still looking into it, and you know it will eventually happen. We should continue through your faves. Your next one on the list, I believe, is Tongues Untied, which I is currently available. I think it might have left by the time this is out on the Criterion channel, so by all means, seek it out. 1989, directed by Marlon Riggs, with assistance from other gay black men, especially poet Essex Hemphill, celebrates black men loving black men as a revolutionary act. This film has a very unique experimental, you know, poetry-infused documentary style. Do you remember where you were when you first saw Tongues Untied? Totally. I saw it uh, actually at the San Francisco Lesbian Gay Film Festival, uh, where it premiered um, in 1989, Um, and uh, uh, which actually was the same year that Paris is Burning premiered at, at the San Francisco Lesbian Gay Film Festival. And um, uh, I remember, I mean, just being totally blown away by it. Um, and uh, I mean, my background is in experimental film and my my work as a filmmaker is, is experimental. And I mean, I consider Marlon a, a, an influence on my work. Um, he... It's amazing to see Tongues Untied now and to see that it still holds up as as an innovative film, you know, 30 years later, like you're like, wow, this is really innovative. Um, And that he did things like, you know, just kind of combining this whole mixture of different approaches of 
poetry and spoken word and dance and obviously like, you know, social justice, um, you know, and, and speaking, it's a first person, you know, a personal documentary that he's speaking as a black gay man and speaking to an audience of other black gay men. I mean, I think that's one of the, it's one of the very simple aspects of it, but one of the most radical things about it is that it's like, I'm talking to my community. I'm not explaining myself. I'm not trying to have anybody accept me or tolerate me or that's not what it's about. It's, and it, and it's quite, um, you know, provocative in, in a way because of that. Um, but again, but like, that's also not the point. It's like that it's speaking to its own audience um, and speaking just so deeply and honestly and, um, and beautifully and, and, you know, yeah, creatively. And it's just so innovative as a film. Mother, do you know I roam alone at night? Wearing colognes, tight pants, chains of gold. Searching for men willing to come back to candlelight. I'm not scared of these men, though some are killers of sons like me. I learned there is no tender mercy for men of color, for sons who love men. There's a reason like it's men. number 29 on our all-time highest rated docs list. You know, it's 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 high for a reason. It is so extraordinary. Yeah, I, I wrote in my review, I kind of want to touch on how, you know, obviously this is an educational piece of filmmaking too. And it still struck me uh, and stopped me in my tracks because growing up, I remember watching so many comedy sets, mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy raw, Eddie Murphy, you know, his live sets. When I was a kid, I had these vivid memories of just being so blown away by his comedy and it being formative. So formative that I still talk about it today. Like, Oh, you remember that Eddie Murphy raw, his entire set. I haven't watched them in many years, but I still talk about them as if I still watch them. And there is a scene in this with uh, Essex poetry and an Eddie Murphy segment that made me like rethink everything. You know, like I need to reevaluate how I talk about, those things from my youth because they're so painful to groups of people that I obviously just forget. And this, you know, this came out in 1989. I'm watching it now, 2021. It's still so impactful and educational. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about that. Like we have memories of, of the culture that we were, you know, loved in our youth and, and at a time when it was extremely common, uh, like, Practically every Hollywood movie had like, you know, homophobic jokes or transphobic jokes or racist jokes uh, or, you know, whatever reflected the culture of the time. And, you know, I think a lot of times we just don't really remember that that's in there. Um, and I, a few years ago, I, I had one of my kids watch Animal House <laughs> and I, I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you have to watch Animal House. It's such a, such a great movie. And like, I watched it. I was like, it's terrible. It's like everything about it is terrible. And like, I, it's not even funny anymore. Like, it's like, it's, I mean, literally horrible. Like, 
And, and you know, but I was like, my memory of it was that it was yeah. hilarious. I mean, it was hilarious because, like, we didn't have that mm-hmm. kind of consciousness raised of, like, wow, it's, like, so sexist and homophobic oh and God. just, like, off the map. It's like, um, this happened last year, too, with um, Bill and Ted 3. So Bill and Ted 3 was coming out. We're so excited. It's Keanu. It's Alex Winter. We love them. They're so sweet. Let's go back and rewatch all the old ones. And then, oh, my God, there's the F-bomb in the first one just after uh, Bill and Ted hug. And then they stand back and they right, slur right. at each other. And it's like, right. we just, right. and apart from that, you know, for the most part, the film still holds up, but it was just so, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You kind of, we willfully forget these things so that we can hold on to the, to the, um, to the good parts of our youth. But how did it make you feel slim when you, when you saw Eddie Murphy in this context? I mean, the editing in that segment was out of sight. Like the focus on his face while Eddie Murphy was doing the bit mm-hmm. and him just being so stoic sitting there kind of taking in those jokes and I know several of my friends feel the same way about those those set pieces and those those specials. So I, I'm just profoundly grateful to have have watched this. I don't usually rate the movies that we watch for Letterbox Show ahead of time, but I gave this five stars. I was completely blown away by this film. Yeah. Um, this should be taught in the schools. Put this yeah. put this in high schools yeah. like around the country. People need to see this, in my opinion. Honestly, yeah. if you haven't seen it, you're you're missing out. Not just the poetry, not just the reexamination of homophobia and stand-up comedy via Eddie Murphy, but also the incredible barbershop quartet, the snap divas, that entire snap sequence is just wild. It's so good. It's the best thing ever. And all of the, and the fact that, and as, as you said at the beginning, the fact that um, all of these exist within a context that is uh, black men essentially talking to themselves and, and, and being unapologetic about that in a way in a way allows us in so much more than if it were uh, more of a distanced take. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. And uh, uh, I'm sure it's available on other streaming services. And Criterion uh, did do a, a, a incredible box set. Um, that's out. Let's return to New York City, I think for your final fave news from home 1976 written and directed by Chantal Ackerman 4.1 average on letterbox that is a high average and this follows the Belgian filmmaker while living in New York it's filmed images of the city and accompanied by the text of her mother back home in Brussels read by Ackerman herself and this is you know the experimental filmmaking that we talked about earlier and obviously, I, in my opinion, very formative for you with your own work. But what was your experience seeing uh, this film for the first time? I would assume it was a major moment. Um, it was, although it's an interesting moment and an interesting, complicated story. So I I um, saw a different um, Chantal Ackerman film when I was in college. I, I, uh, I never did film production classes, but I, I did, uh, have a film studies BA. And um, I would say I, I never learned how to make movies. I learned how to watch them. Yes. Need that on a t-shirt ASAP. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make one of those for me too, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm adding it. I'm adding it to the list. Might just start my own t-shirt store. The, the bosses don't need to yeah. know. Um, Ackerman's film, um, Jean Dielman, um, I saw in, in college in film studies class. 
and uh, and which is also characterized by it's very durational. It's a, it's a very long film, but um, but she her her kind of signature style is you know very long takes, very minimalist, mundane compositions, very static. Um, you know, but just the the slowing down and what happens for the viewer that there's all this emotional resonance that's there. Um, and so I remember, you know, seeing John Dielman and being just blown away. Um, years later, in 1991, I saw a film uh, at Outfest, the Los Angeles LGBT Film Festival, called Massillon, um, as in the city of Massillon, Ohio, uh, by William E. Jones, who was, is a filmmaker who, this is a convoluted story here, he, he studied at CalArts, with James Benning. James Benning is kind of known as like the king of 16 millimeter urban landscape essay filmmaking. Um, Bill studied with James Benning. Um, Bill was very influenced by James Benning and also by, by Chantal Ackerman. And so even though all I had seen was Jean Dielman, uh, I always felt like I was influenced by Chantal Ackerman through Bill Jones, because he was influenced by her work. And, and so then I, would, I went on to make uh, The Joy of Life, my 16 millimeter urban landscape essay film. And, um, and then The Royal Road, my other 16 millimeter urban landscape essay film. And, um, and people would say to me in Q&As, they would say like, oh my God, your film is so much like News From Home, Ackerman's News From Home. And I, would, I was like, huh. And and I and then this is the other weird convoluted thing. At some point, I had seen Ackerman's film that's called Hotel Monterey, mm-hmm. which is a very durational film that's shot inside of a hotel, a New York City hotel. And so people and and somehow in my head, I thought that that was news from home. And so people would say, "Oh, your work is so much like news from home," and I would be like. Uh, yeah, I guess. In, in like, what way? Kind of. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like durational. Like, there are really long static takes, but like, that's like inside a hotel. So, unbeknownst to myself, I had actually not seen News from Home, and oh wow! And then, and then here's the thing. So, when Chantal Ackerman died, which was a few years ago, the 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 day that she passed away I went and watched news from home and finally saw it and I couldn't believe how much my work resembles that film that specific film and and like why people would constantly refer to my films as being like you know news from home but in San Francisco and um it's like really astounding this sort of filmmaking i feel like is very outside of the main lane for so many movie watchers and maybe for a good percentage of letterboxed uh, users and maybe even listeners of this podcast so i highly recommend everyone check out these films because it's unlike probably what you experience and there's such a slow calmness to these films and your film where you're left to ruminate you know, you're left to think. And 
I think that that kind of emotional state, it's so enjoyable to sit and just kind of stew, for lack of a better word, in your own thoughts in these films and just think, you know? There's like moments in your work where there's no quotes, there's no essay happening for 30 seconds, a minute, 90 seconds, and you're left to just kind of think. And look. (laughs) And that sounds kind of silly to say out loud, but it's just so different and just as enjoyable as the other mainstream work. So when you're producing these, these films and you're putting the time in to choose what to say in these moments, what do you hope the viewer gets out? of those moments of silence? Well, uh, well, you said like you have time to think, but I I think even more importantly, you have time to feel um, and, um, and you have time to have your own, whatever your own experience is. And I think it is the, one of the qualities of experimental film in general is that it sends the viewer into their own unique experience in a way that means that, you know, you bring whatever you bring to it, like you might be thinking, you might be like, oh yeah, my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> like, and like, you know, or you might be thinking, oh my God, the light reminds me of childhood or that, or that literal street corner, like something happened, to, you know, that I remember or whatever, just like very, um, uh, you know, random specific things for specific viewers. I listened to an interview that you had done and you had called out specifically, you know, that your work resonates with cis men. And I thought of my, this is after I watched it and I heard that quote, and I kind of like slapped my forehead. But it's true because how often do men get to sit in their own feelings and thoughts outside of going to therapy? Like there really isn't an opportunity and it's almost uncomfortable for most men to do that. Thank you. I, and I'm glad that you seem to be concurring with my, you know, wacky theory. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I do, I, you know, showing my films at, at festivals, I, I get really amazing responses, particularly from straight cis men who, and my feeling is that, you know, I mean, my, a lot of my work, I'm kind of, I always describe it as um, uh, Bochadike pining over unavailable women, and, <laughs> and you know, which which yes is meant to be a little bit funny, but is also meant to be a little bit poignant, and mm-hmm. and it is sad and and has a poignancy to it, and particularly has a vulnerability to it, and that I'm expressing things in the voiceover in first person about being vulnerable or I am being vulnerable, I'm, you know, exhibiting vulnerability. And I think that people in general, but especially straight men, are, are like identifying with this character, you know, of my, me, and and that it gives them permission to be vulnerable. And that isn't really something in our culture that is encouraged or made time for. And I imagine that that's powerful. I mean, I think it's powerful for everyone to connect with our own vulnerability and just have permission to spend, you know, an hour being vulnerable. (laughs) When did you first start looking at the world through a camera? You say you didn't do film school as such, but that you learned by watching yourself. Mm. So when did you first pick up a camera, like with, with intention? And what was that camera? 
Well, God, I mean, it's interesting that you phrase it that exact way because picking up a camera versus being a filmmaker, there are different things. And and I I don't shoot my films. I have a cinematographer, Sophie Constantino, uh, who without whom I couldn't make my films because it involves shooting on film, and I don't know how to do that. But I uh, but interestingly, in the mid '80s, when I was coming out at the University of Minnesota, I had a video camera, um, which, uh, and I, but I, and I just, it's sort of funny to remember it. I actually carried it around a lot and I think I kind of hid behind it. And like, I would interview my friends or just be shooting like during a party, um, in this way that was like, oh my God. And like, I remember thinking of myself as, you know, insecure and, and a voyeur and like, oh, this is this kind of handy thing to have so that I don't have to interact with people. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until in 1987, I saw Sherman's March, uh, Ross McElway's Sherman's March, which is another fabulous film that I recommend to everyone. Um, that was an innovative uh, film that made me think like, okay, I, I think actually I want to make films. And then Bell Jones's Massillon is the other film, is the film that really clenched it for me. It was like, I want to make movies like that. But especially in the context of, and I, you know, LGBT plus History Month, the importance of anyone who picked up a camera and captured the stories of queer people at any point in history, right? It's just like, you, you, don't, you do not know what you've got until you've got yeah. it. Uh, or yeah. until until history happens, and then you go, oh my god! Can I just just because that's just such a perfect opportunity to mention one other thing, which one other thing that I love about Letterboxd, which is <laughs> the um, the new um, or maybe not so new by the time this airs, um, adult uh, feature. Oh yeah! And one of with one of my many hats, I'm the co-director of the Bresson Project. Um, we've worked on restoring and re-releasing the films of Arthur J. Bresson Jr., who was a gay filmmaker in the 1970s and 80s. And he made um, particularly two very pioneering adult films, um, Passing Strangers and Forbidden Letters, um, which are amazing gay films from the 70s, um, which are uh, number one and number three, respectively, on the uh, adult film master list on Letterboxd. Um, mm. And uh, and everyone should go watch them because they're, they're <laughs> incredible. I mean, they are gay adult films, but they are also, um, uh, you know, tell gay history and they're both shot in San Francisco and um, kind of integrated within the San Francisco gay community of the time and amazing stuff. It is amazing stuff. And it really, it, it really was a pivotal reason for introducing these titles to Letterboxd after many years. And, you know, sure people can, can make yuck, yuck jokes about Letterboxd bringing smut to the internet. I don't know. We're not, certainly not the first people who did that, that's for sure. But it was very much about filling gaps in, in filmmakers, uh, filmographies, but also in history, in the history of cinema. Yeah. And and it's sort of discriminatory gaps, really, in a way. If, yeah. you, if you're just kind of going, ah, filthy films, what it's, that's not what it's about. You mentioned uh, previously using Letterboxd, but how do you as a filmmaker engage on Letterboxd? Is it 
Does it uh, <laughs> feel weird? Do you like doing it? I love How did, it. You know, do you poke around on reviews? What's it? What's it like? I, particularly this last year. So uh, my films uh, went up on the Criterion Channel about a year ago, and actually, sadly, are about to come down. Oh, timing, um, but. You can still rent them for super cheap on Vimeo. And I believe the money goes straight to you, so that's all good. Right. And uh, actually, The Royal Road is on on Mubi starting this month and also is oh, on great. Tubi. Um, and, um, but yeah, I like a few months into them being on the Criterion channel, I realized I was like, oh, I'm going to go look on, you know, The Royal Road on Letterboxd. And I was like, oh, my God, there's all these reviews of like all these people because there's this incredible, you know, clearly overlap with uh, Criterion folks and Letterboxd folks. And um, and so tons of people were reviewing my work. And I I was like, OK, maybe people are going to freak out and think this is creepy, but like I'm going to go and like talk to people and especially people who, who were like, I hated that movie. <laughs> and like, it would be like, or whatever, who made like, you know, kind of unpleasant uh, comments. And I would like, you know, engage them in conversation and, and they, and they were like, Oh, thanks for having a sense of humor about it. Um, but, uh, but, but it, of course it was especially nice. Uh, the many people who really, really connect with my work. And, um, and so, but I just feel, yeah, I mean, uh, anyway, I, I'm constantly raving about Letterboxd. And that's another reason, like the ability to connect directly with people, especially during this time when we haven't been able to go to film festivals, has been just an absolute miracle. And so, you know, thank you. Um and, you know, and thanks for this conversation. It's so great. Oh, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Your four <laughs> faves uh, are of a specific type. And uh, what I mean by that is, as Slim said, we did have to contact some industry friends to be able to get copies of, of most of the films in advance of this conversation. So, so I've got a question for you. Are there any like blockbuster mainstream faves that live in your heart? Um, I mean, probably the big one, I don't know if you'd say blockbuster per se, but probably my other kind of favorite mainstream movie would be Vertigo, um, Hitchcock's Vertigo, mm. which, which is also quite a muse for me as a filmmaker. And I, I always say living in San Francisco is like living on the set of Vertigo, um, yeah. because everywhere you turn, you're like, oh, that's where, <laughs> you know, Madeline gets out of her car in front of Mission Dolores Cemetery, <laughs> and like that's where you know. So, um, so Vertigo is a is definitely a big favorite. I mean, are we are we talking Kim Novak first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yep. 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 Definitely. Okay. So speaking, you're speaking to the letterbox masses now. We're we're rolling into um a really important month in terms of queer history. If you were going to pick out like. This is a really hard question, but must see films to um, throw your money, your time, and your attention and care at during LGBT History Month. What would they be? Well, let's see. Well, one of my favorite films that I would start with would be uh, Yancey Ford's Strong Island, which is on Netflix. 
um, which, you know, we talked about Tongues Untied and, and Strong Island is a really, you know, very much in the tradition of Tongues Untied, a very innovative film. Um, uh, Yancey Ford is a trans guy director who's, uh, the, the film itself isn't necessarily about being queer. It's a story about his brother who was, um, died at the hands of the police. And, um, uh, and it's beautifully constructed, innovative, really innovative film. Um, what else? Well, uh, a film called Disclosure that's also on Netflix um, that looks at the history of trans representation on screen um, in which I was, I helped a little bit with. I was one of the consulting producers on it. Amazing, amazing film. Do you want to talk about the celluloid closet, even though it's not recent? Um, I would definitely watch the celluloid closet. It, 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 it's a great film to watch to build your queue of other movies that you want to watch. Um, and it's an incredible, um, you know, overview of uh, looking at the history of representation of LGBT uh, characters on screen. And it, it's based on the book, The Cellulite Closet, that was written by Vito Russo um, in the 1980s. And um, Vito, Vito was one of my mentors one of my most important mentors um, as a queer film history person. And yeah, The Cellular Closet is a definitely a good one. Um, what else? Uh, queer film history. Go, well, I, go look at my letterbox lists. <laughs> go, go look at, I have, I have a bunch of really, you know, I think pretty great lists, including, um, 101 must-see movies for lesbians. So, which there's not actually 101 movies on there yet. Uh, there will be someday. I'm, you know, being aspirational. Um, uh, but, you know, watch anything on that list. Um, I also have a really great list of uh, good LGBT movies on Tubi, the T-U-B-I, Tubi.com, which is, you know, free ad-supported all of those have been added now to my watch list. And then, of course, we just have to get a development deal for Deb's The Series, and we're in business. Thanks so much for listening to The Letterbox Show, and thanks to our guest this episode, Jenny Olson. You can follow Slim, that's me, Gemma, and our HQ page on Letterbox using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, Composing Dynamo's moniker for the theme music, Vampiros Dansotech. Thanks to Jack for the facts. Thanks to our booker, Linda Moulton, for looking after our guests. And to Sophie Shin for the episode transcript. And to you for listening. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. If you're enjoying the show and have guest ideas, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, like Danny Weiser did. Here's his review. Fun hosts, great guest discussion, and a never-ending list of movies to talk about. Wait, is that your Danny? No, <laughs> it's not my Danny, but that was a five-star review, in my opinion. That was beautiful. And that's the show. Hey, Slim. Yes. Let's just pretend that we're in Barcelona and you're in art school and I'm renting sailboats to tourists and no one's a superhero and no one's a villain and we're just us. <laughs> Your most obscure outro yet. <laughs>
You were so kind. It's a, a formal thank you note and a great big apology. Oh, you have nothing to apologize for. Oh, yes, I do. The whole thing must have been so embarrassing for you. Not at all. I enjoy it. Talking to you. Well, uh, I enjoy talking to you. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Ooh.